Welcome back to The Re-Education. I'm Eli Lake, and our topic today is the demise of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda and a key planner of the 9-11 attacks. My guest is Foundation for Defensive Democracy senior fellow Bill Roggio, who has been one of the best and most plugged-in journalists following America's war against jihadist terror. We make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. We just heard Joe Biden on a rare good day for his presidency. He was announcing the successful drone strike against al-Qaeda's leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul on July 30th. That strike is a testament to the determination of the CIA to find and kill the leaders of the organization that felled the Twin Towers and destroyed a wing of the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. Ayman al-Zawahiri was a vile fanatic. He deserved his fate. He was not, though, driven to his fanaticism through deprivation or oppression. That is a pleasant myth many U.S. leaders believed in the years following 9-11. The view that if we created open societies in the Islamic world, young listless men would not be tempted to join the death cult that is al-Qaeda or ISIS. Here's former State Department Deputy Spokeswoman Marie Harf making this point nearly eight years ago. Where there are places around the world where there's a lack of governance, a lack of economic opportunity, President George W. Bush talked about poverty being one of the drivers that leads people to extremism. Where there are uh, lacking in in these kinds of opportunities, uh, we need to talk about how to make that different, how to help our partners around the world give young men in that vulnerable age group a different path in life, show them that there's a different chance for them than joining a terrorist organization. Ayman al-Zawahiri was born into the Egyptian elite. He grew up in Mahdi suburbs of Cairo, a neighborhood where one will find foreign diplomats and powerful regime officials. His father was a professor. His uncle was the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, the National Mosque of Egypt. Zawahiri himself attended medical school and was trained as a surgeon, like Osama bin Laden, who came from one of Saudi Arabia's wealthiest families. Zawahiri was drawn to terrorism because of the power of an ideology known as political Islam the view that Muslims should live under Islamic law and that Islam itself was threatened by Western democracy. He was radicalized because he read books by Syed Qutb, an important Muslim Brotherhood thinker who traveled to America as a young man and was disgusted by the immodestly dressed women and mixed-gender square dancing. He was later executed by Gamal Abdel Nasser. Zawahiri believed in Islamic revolution because he believed the tyrannies of the Arab world had become corrupted by the free world. Awahiri wanted to restore the caliphate, the Islamic empire that reached its peak in the late 8th and early 9th centuries. After 9-11, one of the big think conversations that dominated at least policy discourse was how to win the war of ideas with people like Ayman al-Zawahiri. This led George W. Bush and Barack Obama to endorse the view that Zawahiri and bin Laden had in fact defiled a great religion. They were not really going to make Islam great again, so to speak. They just cared about a will to power. They were sadists, not austere religious scholars. They hated us because of our freedom. Bush famously said that in his address to a joint session of Congress after the 2001 attacks. Americans are asking, why do they hate us? They hate what they see right here in this chamber, a democratically elected government. Their leaders are self-appointed. They hate our freedoms, our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech, our freedom to vote and assemble and disagree with each other. They want to overthrow existing governments in many Muslim countries, such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. They want to drive Israel out of the Middle East. They want to drive Christians and Jews out of vast regions of Asia and Africa. These terrorists kill not merely to end lives, but to disrupt and end a way of life. After 9-11, America built a Leviathan state 
dedicated to preventing terrorist attacks, quite understandably. But that Leviathan also eroded our freedoms at home and the freedoms of others abroad. The FBI often enticed and lured young losers to enter a conspiracy to commit an act of terrorism, only to be prosecuted and jailed for large chunks of their lives. The Bush administration approved a program that was later codified by Congress to collect and sort through all of the cell phone metadata that crossed American territory. Overseas, the CIA enhanced its partnership with intelligence services that often used the tools of surveillance and at times even torture to suppress legitimate dissent. America developed a capability to launch missiles from the unmanned aerial vehicles throughout the Islamic world with stunning precision. And in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, the war against terrorism turned into massive projects to build democratic nations in the ashes of the toppled tyrannies. This campaign to win the war of ideas often led to bizarre moments where the most senior U.S. officials would bend over backwards to appease the sensibilities of pious Muslims. David Petraeus, the general in charge of the Iraqi surge and later the Afghanistan campaign in 2011, publicly condemned a fringe goofball preacher who burned a Quran in Florida, by the way, which is his right as an American, because of how it was interpreted throughout the Islamic world. The top U.S. commander in Afghanistan has condemned an American pastor for burning a copy of the Koran. The actions of Pastor Terry Jones triggered widespread protests in Afghanistan. Fifteen people were killed, including seven United Nations workers. General David Petraeus stressed that the Koran burning was the work of one individual and didn't reflect wider U.S. sentiment. We condemn the action of an individual in the United States who burned a holy Koran. That action was hateful, it was intolerant, and it was extremely disrespectful. That statement, though, may not be enough to defuse the situation. The Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, is calling on the U.S. Congress to issue its own condemnation. The Bush administration condemned a Danish newspaper for printing cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, even as Danish embassies were under attack by unruly mobs, in some cases allowed by the police states where they were gathered. In 2012, the Obama administration initially blamed terrorist attacks on Benghazi, and particularly a U.S. outpost in Benghazi, on an internet video that depicted Muhammad in an unfavorable light. The man who made that film, who was a Coptic Christian from Egypt, was actually arrested on an unrelated charge, but the message was clear. The U.S. government did not want Americans to offend the sensibility of Muslims across the world. And this is in large part because we were engaged not just in a war to hunt and kill terrorist leaders, but to win the hearts and minds of Muslims. Now, all of that said, 9-11 really was the last terror attack in America of its kind. The policies adopted back in 2001 did in fact prevent the next 9-11. Now, I'm aware that there are these so-called lone wolf attacks, there was the Boston Marathon, but you really cannot compare the scale of casualties, let alone the property damage of the 9-11 scheme to those attacks. And while Iraq today is by no means perfect, it is freer than it ever was under Saddam Hussein, and the country has managed to hold successive elections. Afghanistan, well, that has become a failure. The war failed because President Trump and then President Biden chose to lose it when they withdrew the last remnant of U.S. forces in the country, or in the case of Trump, agreed to withdraw that last remnant, that was keeping the elected government afloat in Kabul. Today, Afghanistan is ruled by the Taliban, the same group that hosted al-Qaeda before 9-11 and shares its larger goal of restoring the caliphate. All of this brings us back to the late Ayman al-Zawahiri. How has his plan fared in the last 21 years? Now, if you count the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan almost a year ago, you could argue that a remote province of the old Islamic empires is now ruled by Islamic fanatics. But the heart of the Muslim world, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, they're closer than ever to Israel. I mean, we've had the Abraham Accords. The Saudis today no longer tolerate members of the royal family funding or raising money for jihadist groups the way they did for the 1980s, the 1990s, and even parts of the 2000s. In Iraq and Afghanistan, millions of Muslims at great personal risk 
showed up again and again at polling places targeted by al-Qaeda and the Islamic State to exercise a democratic right to vote. Millions of Muslims rose up against tyrants during the Arab Spring, demanding their freedom. And after the rampages of al-Qaeda's offshoot in Iraq, and later the Islamic State, most Arab people and governments today despise these jihadists, these heirs of Sayyid Qutb. Political Islam is not an ideology on the rise. It's a spent force. Now, this doesn't mean that America should stop hunting terrorists and disrupting their networks. Of course it should. But it does require an adjustment of priorities. And here we have learned two things that are in tension. Most Muslims do want to live in freedom, if given the chance. But also, America lacks the patience and the skill to remake the Muslim world in its image. Whoever replaces Ayman al-Zawahiri will, of course, seek revenge. But the organization is no longer a threat to take over the Muslim world, to win over the kinds of converts that it would need to have popular legitimacy. America has made, of course, plenty of mistakes in the war on terror. But Ayman al-Zawahiri died knowing his vision for the world was but a pipe dream. Now this nation that I love is falling under attack. A mighty sucker punch came flying in from somewhere in the back. Soon as we could see clearly through our big black eye. Man, we lit up your world like the 4th of July. Hey, Uncle Sam, put your name at the top of his list. And a statue of Liberty started shaking her fist. And an eagle will fly. And it's gonna be here when you hear Mother Freedom start ringing her bell. And it'll feel like the whole. Well, listeners, we have a very timely guest today. He is a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also the editor of the Long War Journal, which is a must read if you care about following not just the details, but really from somebody who knows his stuff and is not going to give you political spin about how we're doing in the war on terror. So thank you so much, Bill Roggio, for coming on The Reeducation. It is great to have you here, especially today, which is the morning after we found out last night that U.S. drone strike had taken out a very evil man, the head of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Eli, it is a pleasure. Thank you for the kind words. And, you know, I, I didn't realize there was a war on terror anymore. I thought we ended the endless wars with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. <laughs> it seems like, you know, I always say. Well, in, in fairness to, to Joe Biden and his administration, he did say that they were going to continue to focus on the threat of terrorists. And he, they clearly did. The CIA was was not loafing around. I joke. And this is not a yeah. Republican Democrat issue. You're absolutely right. I keep the politics out of it. Afghanistan, the failure of the, uh, of the war on terror, their bipartisan failures. I can see, we could do a podcast of, for hours in detailing each administration's failures. Trump yeah. signed that deal with the Taliban that gave Biden the ability to withdraw. He executed it all. Uh, you know, look, I, I hold the entire Washington establishment for the failures in Afghanistan and the entire war on terror. Well, we're going to get to that, but I want to first start with what we know. Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was believed to have been hiding between Pakistan and Afghanistan for many years, apparently felt safe to return to one of his wives and families in a very high-end neighborhood in Kabul, which used to be very close to what was the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, and didn't leave the house, but would go on the balcony and didn't seem to have all that many security precautions when you compare that to the compound where bin Laden was, right? And everything else. Is that about right? It sounds about right. I think he was yeah. certainly overconfident. I mean, think about yeah. it. He was in Taliban-controlled Kabul, right? They, all of Afghanistan is dealt. If you look at pre-9-11, pre September 10th, 2001, the Northern Alliance was in control of territory in Afghanistan. There was fighting with the, with the Taliban, which Al-Qaeda participated in. 
You don't have that today. Today you have the Taliban, you know, running roughshod over the entire country. It rules. He was in a home that is believed to be run by a key aide to Surajuddin Haqqani, who is a, one of two deputy emirs of the Taliban, as well as their interior ministry. He believed that he was as safe as he could be. Clearly he wasn't. But in a, in a way, you can't blame him. You can't blame the hubris of Zawahiri. It ultimately cost him his life. But they were riding high after the U.S. withdrawal, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I, you know, uh, I, but let's, let's not fool ourselves in thinking that Al-Qaeda won't adjust from, from this. That I want to get to that and where Al-Qaeda is going to be. But I want to focus on this because I was among many people who wrote at the time of the withdrawal, I, I, I hated that withdrawal. I hated the Trump deal with the Taliban. There was a lot of things that happened in towards the end of the war in Afghanistan that were, I think we both agree, were pretty terrible. However, one of the things I said was like this idea of over the horizon, and for our listeners, what that means is the U.S. did not need military bases inside of Afghanistan in order to strike individual targets with precision in the country. So it was almost anybody who had been paying attention and you'd written this understood that that Al-Qaeda leadership, many Al-Qaeda leaders were already in Afghanistan being sheltered by the Taliban while they were negotiating whatever, you know, this withdrawal agreement was. And of course, after the America left, other people would come back. That's not a surprise. What was surprising to me was that without a military base or a presence in Afghanistan, the CIA was able to find him kill him. How do you account for that? Were we wrong that maybe, maybe we just, we have this over the horizon capability and we didn't need those bases or was it lucky or I don't know, maybe we need to learn more. So I never said it was impossible, but okay. it was no, no, I know you didn't. I'm saying I, I was very skeptical. I thought it was a fig leaf that president Biden and, and, and his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan would say to quell legitimate counterterrorism concerns from people like us saying, well, how are you going to find the bad guys if you don't have people on the ground and you don't have a base from which to sort of cultivate context and all this other stuff? Yeah, so, there are, are, there, there's other means, and, and we yeah. took them. I've always, I, to me, killing one leader in an operation, it's doable, but, it, and, but does that really lead to the demise of Al-Qaeda? Is that going to decapitate the organization? You could kill an individual, particularly an individual who is overconfident and like to stand on a balcony. But are we going to go after the next Al-Qaeda leader? Are we going to go after his staff? Those are the ones that are key players within the organization. Can this type of campaign be sustained? That's, that to me is the, is the key question. I'm not shocked that we could kill an individual if we choose to do so. Keep in mind, it's nearly one year after U.S. withdrawal. This is the first strike inside of Afghanistan. And as you noted, there's other key Al-Qaeda leaders that are based in, inside of Afghanistan, very likely including Zawahiri's staff. And what we known from exploiting bin Laden's documents that were seized from his compound in Abbottabad was that members of the general staff of, of the Al-Qaeda is what they call their general command. They're up and coming leaders within the organizations. Many of them became top leaders of branches and of, of Al-Qaeda's branches or, or rose to become their 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 general manager, which is basically the th number three position. Remember, Al-Qaeda didn't have to fill the number two position until after the death of bin Laden. That was with Zawahiri. And one of his deputies, and his deputies became, you know, were members of the general of the general staff. So I, I realize I'm getting a little in the weeds there. But to, to you know, to, to restate that, it's not surprising you could do it once. Show me you could do it five times, 10 times. Show me that you could sustain a campaign. Yeah, well, okay, but, but just to push back a little bit, you know, I'm leaving aside the over the horizon question, which I think is an important one. And I think you're raising a very good point. But in the last few years, the United States killed Hamza bin Laden, who was bin Laden's son and was maybe advertised as a potential leader of Al Qaeda. And given the sort of blessing from Zawahiri, who was of bin Laden, of Osama bin Laden's generation, there have been other successful strikes against other key Al Qaeda leaders. And the U.S. has, wouldn't say, decimated the organization because they have more regional affiliates now, as you have documented so ably. But the, you know, kind of core leadership that pulled off 9-11, USS Cole, the embassy, the, the two embassy bombings in Africa, the big stuff that caught our attention, you know, 20 plus years ago, 
is, you know, they're, they're gone. I mean, we, we, we have managed to get vengeance and to send the message that however long it takes, you know, you, you, we're hunting you and we'll, we'll, we'll get you. So keep in mind that Al Qaeda leaders, I, 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 my response to that is name me a president or a vice president or even a general mm -hmm. who was act, who served on September 11th, 2001, who is active within the U S government or U S military today. The answer to that is going to be zero. Al Qaeda leaders don't retire. They either die of old age or they're killed in a counterterrorism operation. Um, the leaders, by the way, the leaders you mentioned, Hamza bin Laden and others that we killed, we killed while we had a presence in Afghanistan. We were That's killing true. them at a somewhat, I, I would say an effective rate, but it wasn't a rate that caused the, the demise of Al Qaeda. During that time, during the 21 years since 9-11, Al Qaeda's only had two leaders. Bin Laden was killed in two, 10 years after 9-11. Zawahiri was killed 21 years after 9-11. There was a deep bench of, of people beneath them that have been groomed for leadership positions within Al-Qaeda. Just because we don't know their names, I actually do know a lot of their names, but just because they're not public names, that mm. means no, doesn't make them any less dangerous, doesn't mean that Al-Qaeda's mission has changed, doesn't mean that Al-Qaeda doesn't seek to strike us, or more importantly, Al-Qaeda isn't working to achieve its goal of establishing a global caliphate. Remember, Afghanistan is merely one emirate within that caliphate. That is what Al-Qaeda's goal always has been. The terrorist attacks against us were merely a tactic to, or are merely a tactic to get us to withdraw. But one individual who may, may very well take over Al-Qaeda, he's suspected of being the, the deputy leader of Al-Qaeda at this moment, is Saif al-Adil. He's wanted for- he's, He was in Iran for many years. Exactly. Involved in the embassy bombings in 1998 yeah. in Kenya and Tanzania. Involved with- providing training to the predecessor of Shabab in attacking U.S. forces in, in Mogadishu in 1993. So there's other individuals like that that are still around. They're not household names when it comes to Al-Qaeda. But again, this doesn't mean that Al-Qaeda is any less dangerous or it's not still working to achieve its goals. Well, that's a good point. But if you look at the broad sort of goal, not just of Al-Qaeda, but of all of the jihadist organizations, it is the restoration of the caliphate. Sure. The big kind of theological schism between the Islamic State or ISIS and Al-Qaeda is that ISIS believed now's the time and they could create the caliphate now, whereas the, you know, with the view if, of... If I may interrupt you, Eli, okay. you just, I'm laughing on this end because I put it this way. The Islamics, yeah. I, to break it down in the simplest terms, yeah. the, the Islamic State's view on this is caliphate now with an explanation. Yes. And, and the Al-Qaeda's view is patiently build the caliphate, right? Yes. Build the right. caliphate piece by piece, emirate by emirate. That's the, they have the same goals. They have diff, different. They, they, and right, exactly. To, but but Al-Qaeda takes a longer view. Yes. And, but it is interesting that the ISIS experiment, which, you know, for a few years in the late 20 teens, we believed were, you know, that was the future. That was the new threat. Well, you know, how's that going? I mean, they got they got beat by by American air power and Kurdish Maoists and a few Arabs soldiers thrown in. And, you know, there isn't much of a caliphate for them anymore. And I mean, I think that getting the leader of Al Qaeda in Kabul, where he thought he was safe, sends a message they're not safe. How's your so I mean. In that respect, do you think Al-Qaeda is any closer to the restoration of the Islamic Caliphate than they were, you know, on 9-11? So I was one, not one of those who thought the Islamic State had a sustainable model. They were a lightning rod for, uh, right. and, and it actually served uh, Al-Qaeda's goals, right? Once the U.S. began focusing on the Islamic State, it took a lot of pressure off Afghanistan, or I'm sorry, off, off of Al-Qaeda. Particularly as in Afghanistan, it helped the Taliban to achieve victory. The U.S expended enormous amounts of energy on the Islamic State, particularly in Afghanistan, when the Taliban was always the real threat. So here's how I look at this. I, do I think Al-Qaeda is close to establishing its global caliphate? No. Do I think they're closer they, that today than they were prior to 9-11? I do. Here's Why is that? Here's how Al-Qaeda looked pre-September 10th, 2001. They were backing the Taliban in Afghanistan. The Taliban didn't fully control the country. 
And they operated on a cellular level in multiple countries, Somalia, Yemen, you know, but they weren't an organized insurgency force, right? Here's what we have today. The Taliban in full control of Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda operating in conjunction with Pakistani terrorist groups. A lot of these Pakistani groups are backed by the Pakistani state. Al-Qaeda maintains a close relationship with Iran to this day. In Syria, Al-Qaeda-backed groups, including an Al-Qaeda group, have an enclave in northern, north, northern Syria, Idlib province. In Somalia, Shabab controls about 40% of that country. And, you know, if you ask me, Somalia is probably the next country to go. The jihad has, you know, no pun intended, but maybe it is, exploded throughout Africa in countries where the jihad never existed. And that's not just Al-Qaeda, but it's Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So you have Al-Qaeda branches, something that never existed. Again, they operated at a cellular level, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda in the right. Indian subcontinent, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Shabab, which is Al-Qaeda East Africa. And then there's smaller branches that are in the Sahel and, and in West Africa. You know, Al-Qaeda has taken a hit definitely in Southeast Asia, without a doubt. You know, On the Arabian Peninsula, well, they've sort of taken a hit too, right? I'm sorry, where? Wouldn't you say on the Arabian Peninsula? In Ar yeah, look, things, things are definitely not going well for Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula today. Yeah. But two times in the last uh, decade plus, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula controlled about half of Yemen. So, you know, I always say there's an ebb and flow to the jihad that be, what, no matter what group it is, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, there's ups and downs for the global organizations as well as the regional organizations. You know, give it a, a give it an up in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and up in yet and in Somalia and in Africa. This I'm talking about Al Qaeda here, and and a down a down thumbs in Yemen and a down th thumbs down in in Southeast Asia, but the group still exists. It has tens of thousands of fighters in its ranks when it had just probably ten. You know, it, it, we can we can quibble over the estimates. I'd estimate Al Qaeda probably has well over fifty to hundred thousand men under under arms when combined. Whereas, you're talking about all the regional when, when everything when you put everything right. together. Yeah, global Al Qaeda is in your view fifty to hundred thousand. That would be my guess. men under that, arms. Okay. You, yeah, you look at Somalia particularly. Okay, um, and in in Africa they have tens of thousands of fighters that didn't exist pre nine eleven. So that's why I say. You know, look, we've done things in this country and I don't want to be a complete doomsayer. We've, we've attrited Al-Qaeda's traditional leadership, but they're, they're an organization that has replaced that leadership, but with men that have been under fire, that have learned how, that have battlefield experience that they couldn't obtain in multiple theaters that they didn't have pre 9-11. Is Al-Qaeda the preeminent threat that faces us in, in America today? Not, not the case as it was maybe. 15, 20, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But it's, if we take our eye off the ball, it certainly can be. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good explanation, but I want to, you know, on this show, we like to steal, man. We like to push back sure. to get the strongest argument. So no, let me this make is the best way, Eli, I, I'm a, I perfectly agree with this. I mean, yeah. what better way to, you know, than to, to, to have skepticism about these claims. I'm so, highly skeptical of the, the claims on, on the other side of the argument and love having conversations. Yeah, them. no, no. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to make it, I'm, I'm closer to you, but I want to try to sure. kind of tease out. So first of all, I would just notice that after 9-11, maybe we miscalculated after 9-11, but there was a serious debate in this country and all of the West about the danger of just the broader Muslim world and regular Muslim people being accepting, if you will, the rule of Islamic fundamentalism. I'm saying this is a bit broader than just Al-Qaeda as an organization, but certainly there was a concern that in, you know, the failure of governance of many of the sclerotic police states and kingdoms of the Arab world and the broader Muslim world would lead many people to sort of say, you know what, maybe we should try Islamic fundamentalism. And we saw that, by the way, in the, in the Palestinian elections in 2006, where the traditional party of Fatah lost a majority in their parliament, even though they haven't had an election since, to Hamas, which is a Muslim Brotherhood chapter. And when I say Muslim Brotherhood, there are differences between Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda, but they are generally both what, what we would call, they, they believe in something called political Islam, which is that society should be organized through the tenets of the Quran, 
and Islamic law, and they reject things like democracy or individual rights or things of that nature. So today, do you think that people looking at life under the Taliban or, you know, what, what, what it's like to live under al-Shabaab in Somalia, or just the fact that there has been so much senseless and horrific violence perpetrated by people, whether you want to go back to the 2000s with people like Zarqawi, who was, you know, representing al-Qaeda in Iraq, or ISIS, and the horrible, you know, death toll against other Muslims, that I'm not worried that this is a political movement that will kind of catch fire and eventually have any kind of serious buy-in or legitimacy from the broader Muslim population. No, I, I you grant that. that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I don't. Whereas I, I think, think that there was a concern that in 2001, that could be a very real possibility in part because who wanted to live in Saudi Arabia or Yemen or Egypt for that matter. And I, I've lived in Egypt, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm familiar with how inefficient and terrible it can be if you're an Egyptian, you know? Yeah, I, I, I actually agree with you. I think the idea, the concern that Al-Qaeda would, because of its opposition to the U.S., because of that, you know, bold, and I, when I say that, I mean, I'm just referring to as 9-11 was a bold attack. It was a horrific attack. It was spectacular in the sense yeah. that it gathered headlines and and showed that the little man could stand, you know, the the stand up to the, the, yeah, and it, the it, perfect it, there was uh, a right potential. We were very life. concerned that Al Jazeera would spark this because they kept playing bin Laden tapes and they he's, you know, he's in bin Laden himself. And I and to a certain extent, Zawahiri are very eloquent speakers in traditional Arabic and their messages could appeal to a certain kind of person. I just do not see them popping yeah, yeah, on the I, Arab I actually, street right it, now. It's not something that is, you know, that's, it, the, uh, it's not a, a major concern. I would even say a minor concern that the Arab world will be inflamed and jump into the Al-Qaeda camp. I kind of look at it like perfect, imperfect analogy, but like communism, right? You only need a certain percentage for this to stick. Well, if, for the revolution part. For the revolution to for, stick. I'm saying right? for the revolution part, sure. Right. And, you know, Al-Qaeda has very detailed instructions on once you take over territory, how you... Create year zero, yeah, but but like, you know, we've as enough people who've been alive and have been around and seen those the full cycle of this stuff. Nobody wants to live in there. There was, I mean, the fact that the ISIS caliphate created so many refugees, in addition to the obviously horrors of Assad's war machine, but people were fleeing ISIS. They didn't want to live in the caliphate. Yep. And I mention this because if you go through the papers that have been captured from Al-Qaeda layers. And this is something that Zawahiri has a long history of corresponding and talking about and worrying about, which is he's concerned about the public image of Al-Qaeda and not alienating the Islamic world. He doesn't want to and other fellow believers. Am I right about that? I mean, he talks about this. He, yes. he was very critical of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And we mentioned Abu Musab Zarqawi, and he was too violent in his view. He certainly thought that ISIS was alienating people. He thought that public beheadings were a bad idea. You know, I, I read this in the New York Times this morning, but apparently he he didn't want to do a cyanide attack on the New York subway because he thought it would it would turn people off. I mean, obviously, this guy's a fiend and a killer and he, he's going to rot in hell. But Ayman Zawahiri was worried about the public image of his organization because he believed that he could not have he could not restore the caliphate without any some kind of at least level of popular legitimacy. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I, and yeah. just, you know, they may be terrorist masterminds who many of us may think are insane, but they're pragmatic. And, and that's a prag. And that's to me is what makes them dangerous. And yeah. you had mentioned Al-Qaeda's, you know, evaluations of how to deal with areas when they're governed. I could think back to a document between the leader of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb where Nasser al-Wahashi, the head of al-Qaeda in the, in the Arabian Peninsula, was talking about the effects of what happened after they took control of a large area of the population. He was warning things like, we tried to impose Sharia, our version of Sharia, you know, too quickly. We need to do things in stages. So they, they're thinking of plans of way to introduce their, their ideology and their, their laws more in a more measured fashion that doesn't, isn't shocking the population. So, but to me, that makes them even a greater threat. They reckon, this is what the big difference, why I think Al-Qaeda has always been the bigger threat than the Islamic State. The my way or the highway method of, of the Islamic State is always going to alienate. 
whereas Al Qaeda has always been willing to evaluate its performance, to adjust its tactics and strategy and its implementation of, say, imposing Islamic law and governance. It's been willing to, to, to recognize that doing things too quickly would be, would have a negative impact. They, they, they're willing to work with groups that may not be 100% ideological, ideologically pure, unlike the Islamic state. And Zawahiri, as you noted, had these, these are concerns of his, these are messages that he, and I mean, they were willing to work with Iran for years and still work with Iran and Iran is a, is a Shia fundamentalist country and people who, who have just a sort of Islam one-on-one for our listeners who may not be as in the weeds as we are on this, you know, the, the kind of austere interpretation of Wahhabi influenced or Muslim Brotherhood influenced Sunni Islam considers that Shia Islam Muslims are infidels. So they're willing to work with the Iranians because they share a common enemy. They don't like America. And so that does show a kind of pragmatism where I, I don't think it would have been possible for ISIS to really cooperate with Iran because they were they were Jonestown that, level Kool-Aid drinking crazy. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, but Al Qaeda is crazy, too, but I'm just saying yeah. even crazier. <laughs> yeah. so, and that point you make, right? This was one of the big points of contention between, you know, the old Islamic state of Iraq under Zarqawi, yep. where Al Qaeda Central was saying, hey, don't upset the Iranian apple cart too much. We stop blowing up that. mosques. Need... He's like, stop blowing up Shia mosques. That's yeah, not good. Th- this is this is we have leadership based in inside of Iran. We and and this isn't a treasury designation. That's something I'm making up. The treasury designation under the Obama administration, where it says you know the secret deal, literally the secret deal between Iran and Al Qaeda, and that Iran was a key facilitation pipeline um, for Al Qaeda. So there, that's that pragmatism that we're talking about. Well, we should say it's a complicated thing because it's compl- very complicated. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, especially under Qasem Soleimani, who is also resting in pieces, he worked very closely with the Iraqi military and other Iraqi militias, oftentimes with American air cover to help drive out ISIS from Iraq. And there were a lot of people both even before this who wanted to say that the Iranians could maybe be an ally in the war on terror because they had this mutual interest against ISIS. And you and I and a few other people kind of in Washington who've been writing about this for years have always made the point that no, 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 the Iranians were actually very helpful after 9-11 in helping, you know, secure, you know, safe, safe haven for not just Al Qaeda leaders, but the families of Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zubahari. And there have been, there is, they, they are in fact able to cooperate. And so it's a pipe dream to think that you could get you know, you could have a better relationship with Iran and they would maybe turn on Al-Qaeda because they're our allies. They are allies. I just want to yeah, point absolutely. out. Absolutely. Look, I just, Eli, I just testified in a, it last October in a case it was Cabrera versus Iran. Iran, of course, doesn't show up. It's for service members who were killed, their families or, or wounded in Afghanistan. We're suing Iran for its support of the Taliban. And we, we won the case. We showed how Iran was not only supporting Al-Qaeda, which is a lot of information, but, but supporting the Taliban. And it's because of this practical relationship, they were funding terror cells of the Kabul attack network, which is an amalgamation of the Taliban, Al Qaeda, and a host of other central Asian and local terror groups. And just to put this in, in context, that's significant because in the 1990s, the Taliban conducted a horrible massacre against Iranian diplomats. And so these alliances can shift. Sure. I like to think of the analogy here is it's like the five mafia families. They would kill each other. They would sometimes be at war with one another, but they had a common enemy. They didn't, they, against the FBI and the Justice Department. So they would cooperate when they could, even though, you know, whenever you have cooperation among, you know, bloodthirsty, murderous criminals, there's going to be tensions and they would also, they would also compete. They'd also kill each other. So that's probably the way to understand absolutely the Iran Al Qaeda relationship. Nobody is arguing that Iran is the sponsor of Al Qaeda or like, that's the real, you know, Iran's a menace under itself, but they were willing to cooperate and they've been cooperating for like a quarter century now. Yeah. They, they shared strategic goals, drive the U S out of Afghanistan. Absolutely. Brandon didn't want, the U.S. on its border uh, with Afghanistan, just like they didn't want it on in Iraq. 
And they did what they had to. There was no other, and it, it was easier in Iraq with Iran. For Iran, they could sponsor the Shia terror groups primarily. No such thing existed in Afghanistan. So uh, Iran did the next best, best thing. And we proved that this support began the day after 9-11 and, and the case went up to 2019. But we found evidence that it was ha the support was happening. You know, again, it was a 20-year tw endeavor and they both won. And that's a, you know, doesn't mean that they're, they're popping champagne together. No. But, you know, there's there's something to work with in the future. And these are things that you have All to right. So I want, I want to, now I want to push on one other thing. That is the difference between September 11th, 2001 and August 2nd, 2022. And it's the following, as I see it. The next day, September 12th, 2001, the entire U.S. national security state had to invent what we were going to do to not only protect our homeland, but, you know, we had to, we had, it took us years to figure out how to understand networks of terror groups and for those lessons to be learned and for us to sort of get good at it. It took us years or a few years at least to develop, to, to, to develop a fleet of armed drones. If you can believe it on 2001, we really didn't have anything close to what we have now in terms of our capability for, for unmanned aerial vehicles. And there's a series of things, whether it's working, you know, having effective sanctions regimes coordinated through not just Treasury, but also the United Nations, working counterterrorism cooperation with other countries. After, you know, September 12th, 2001, I'm sure you would remember this. You know, Saudi Arabia was like, we didn't know what side they were really on. Now, Saudi Arabia is an absolute shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder ally with the United States when it comes to jihadist organizations, particularly Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So in that respect, I would just say, it's not just, I think you're right, Al-Qaeda has adapted and adjusted. So are the good guys. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, think, yeah. you know. And we're better at it now, as this latest, you know, operation shows. Oh. We were able to get the leader of Al-Qaeda without having any, you know, military boots on the ground in, in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. It's never, we could zero. never have done that after we could have done that, you know, before 9-11 we, or even in the first few years after 9-11, we just, we, we've learned how to do it. We've learned this stuff too. Right. And I, I, I agree. It's not a zero sum game. Al Qaeda's adapted. We've adapted. I, I still go back to, yes, we can kill an individual leader, but can, but is that A, is that enough? And B, are we capable of sustaining an operation against Al-Qaeda? Are we willing to take the political risk to risk killing more civilians as happened during the U.S. withdrawal with the strike in, in Kabul? Um, you know, those are questions that we're going to we're going to have answered. I mean, I'm, I, right, by the way, we can say that the Biden administration should get credit for for the successful strike. Absolutely. And it was still an effing goat rodeo in how he chose to leave Afghanistan and lose the war voluntarily. There's a, you can have those two views. You can say, hey, I'm glad that, that President Biden, you know, was briefed and made his decisions and, and went ahead with it. And, you know, good, you know, credit, credit due to obviously the people who pulled it off and the CIA, but credit, you know, to the, the president should get that, that credit just as I think Trump deserves the credit for Qasem Soleimani and Baghdadi and, Obama deserves the credit for bin Laden and Bush deserves the credit for Zarqawi. But it doesn't change the fact that in so many ways, and maybe you could just talk about this, the, 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 the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was just a, an utter humiliation and embarrassment and a scandal. Absolutely. And let me start by saying, I actually understand and I'm sympathetic to the arguments to withdrawing from Afghanistan. Okay. It's been our management of, of Afghanistan through all four administrations was horrific. And I'm just going to give a brief, very, very brief summation of, of where we went wrong. The Bush administration, the all in on nation building and then building an Afghan government that wasn't suitable for Afghanistan and an Afghan military that wasn't suitable for the, the Afghan military. And, and doing zero under Bush about the cruel, corrupt and, you know, sadistic regional warlords Absolutely. that effectively replaced the Taliban. So if you want to get to this concern about the population giving legitimacy to Islamic fundamentalism, well, the, the, the clearest way to do that is to empower a bunch of drug dealer, dealer pederasts to be local governors in the country because people can honestly say 
my life was better when I was living under eighth century Islamic fundamentalists than I am under these corrupt horrors, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, there was no effort to force yeah. the replacement of that. And then the failure to, to, to recognize Pakistan that it wasn't really our enemy the whole time. Right. The Obama administration, um, the, the Afghan war was the good war until he wanted to get the hell out. And, you know, the, the cynical surge that's all more troops, American troops die in that. But in fairness, Obama, and I've been, you know, we're both critical of Obama's foreign policy, but in fairness to Obama, he did understand that Pakistan was the end. He did. But but nothing was really done about it. We kept other than killing bin Laden in Pakistan. I mean, that, but but we kept kept sending billions of dollars to the Pakistanis and hope to change their behavior. We gave cracks to to a crack addict and hope he would quit crack. And and, and that the and then cutting the surge off at its knees. It was very cynical and it was and then open negotiations with the Taliban. But to his credit, he cast aside quickly because he recognized what a political failure that was. The Taliban weren't going to agree to any of the terms. Trump administration, easy. He did, to his credit, cut off Pakistan. Um, but then he pretended Pakistan was our ally and cut a deal with the Taliban. And then the Biden administration, of course, not withdrawing Trump, uh, withdrawing from Trump's horrible deal, but doubling down, not only withdrawing from Afghanistan, but withdrawing in a manner that gave the, uh, the Afghan government zero chance to have a fighting chance. The not just the Afghan government, withdrawing in a manner that was provocative yes to not just america's jihadist enemies to all of our enemies well yes no listen to the russians the chinese and everyone the chinese were telling us during this horrific withdrawal where you know you know poor civilians were, were clinging to helicopters as they were lifting off and 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 c-140 you know as they were leaving the airport they were saying you know they were threatening taiwan they're saying hey you're next I mean, they were going to our allies, the yeah. Chinese and the Russians and saying, hey, can you trust those guys? Is that really your ally? Is that really your friend? Are they going to come to your defense? So the Biden administration, by by withdrawing in the manner that he did, he gave the Afghans no chance to internalize the actual idea. And I look, I talked to Afghan diplomats before he was elected, after he was elected and the day prior, and also officials like were advisors in the Interior Defense yeah. Ministry and Presidency, telling them, Biden is going to pull out, you need to organize yourself. And to a man, the response was, I've been assured by state, by Defense Department, by even by members of the administration that the U.S. would never leave. They never believed that we were leaving until that last plane left. So we never gave the Afghan government a chance to, to consolidate its lines, defend what, abandon what it had to abandon, particularly in the South and the East, and set up Northern Alliance 2.0. And that would have given at least the, the time and space for them to, to, to reorganize themselves and have some opposition to the Taliban. So it was horrible on so many levels, the optics of that. We abandoned a major non-NATO ally. That's what Afghanistan was. If I'm a major non-NATO ally, I have to question whether the United States really thinks I'm a major non-NATO ally any longer. So yeah, that so the withdrawal, the withdrawal. It's not just the decision to withdraw, but how it was done, and how it not only impacted. Look, if if what happened in Afghanistan could stay in Af Afghanistan, we could just go well, shrug our shoulders. We lost that brush war. Let's move on. But it's not the case. Our enemies, our adversaries, and our allies and our friends noticed it. They took note, and I have zero doubt that part of not the entire decision of Russia to invade Ukraine. I, I believe that they, they thought the Russian Putin saw weakness and felt that the United States wouldn't come to, to the aid of, of, an, uh, of a friend and thought it would make, you know, and, and I, I, I believe in my heart that that's what. Well, you know, I, it is, it's, it's, I think you'd arguably say that Putin miscalculated because. Certainly, uh, certainly did. But the all of Europe and America is leading the way or we're giving him all kinds of weapons and. Sure. I mean, he miscalculated, but that war happened and it's still happened. No, no, we and failed. It's, to deter, it's like we failed to deter Russia in part because of Afghanistan. But at the same time, Vladimir Putin kind of failed to understand that, you know, we weren't going to be appeasing surrender monkeys sure. all the time. So but you can't blame him for thinking that after after what he saw, how the U.S. operated in Afghanistan and how we left. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I certainly, I, I did not have high hopes, you know, at the launch of the war. I thought I was very concerned. Everybody underestimated 
uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, who was much, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's, it's 180 degrees different than Ashraf Ghani, even though I don't think Ashraf Ghani had much of a card or hand to play. He didn't have the loyalty of his own military. But nonetheless, you know, he cut and run and Zelensky said, give me ammo. Yeah, no, there's certainly very, if, if, if Afghanistan had a Zelensky and things might be different, but they didn't. And again, this goes back to the structural issues. Look, the reality is, is the U.S. government foisted Arshav Ghani on the Afghan people. You know, we, we pushed for that decision for him and Abdullah, uh, Abdullah, Abdullah, who was the technically the... What was he was the like, foreign minister at one point. No, no, he was the, yeah, he's the CEO him, of the uh, government. CEO, yeah, yeah. They, yeah right. they created this position under Obama in order to right, do some to, power to sharing. This bizarre, right, right it was which undermined the Afghan, the Afghan constitution. And I, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a that's all a very good point. But listen, with a little bit of time we have left, Bill, I want to ask you to address maybe a certain kind of listener of mine who is you know somewhat seduced by. We used to call it an isolationist argument. Maybe that's a bit unfair, but certainly what is now known as a kind of restraint foreign policy. Whereas, you know what? Yeah, it's really sad for all the Afghan women. It's sad for the people in Kabul who wanted, you know, to live in relative freedom. But we're just not good at this. And it was an endless war and we were never going to get out of there. So who cares? Instead of nation building abroad, let's nation build at home. That is, there are a lot of Americans who think that now. A lot of them in the Republican Party, believe it or not. What's your argument to them about why it's still worth it to care about what happens in Afghanistan and still to have, like, maybe in the back of your head, a scenario by which the Taliban will be driven from power again? So first, let me state that, again, I'm sympathetic to those arguments in a certain way, right? I understand. To me, the problem isn't that we shouldn't care about these places, right? It's that I have a lack of faith in American leadership and its political leadership, and now it's military leadership and in the intelligence community. They manufactured the lie that Al-Qaeda was irrelevant, that it was yeah. the, the D words, defeated, degraded, decimated, right? And they use this as justification to leave Afghanistan. Look, if you recognize that, again, if you recognize Afghanistan was failed and we couldn't do anything there anymore, there was ways to disengage, again, to give the Afghan government a fighting chance to continue to look out after our interests. But do you really think a fighting chance would have worked? I mean, isn't it, isn't it possible that it was so corrupt, it was so corrupt and that the, that there was the no, the sense of a nationhood that exists in Ukraine because they have a history of Russia raping them, that there isn't maybe the idea of a, I mean, like there isn't the same sense of nationalism in Afghanistan. Well, I don't, I don't think you were going to have a nationalized, again, the, the Afghan government was going to have to abandon areas of its government. We right. just never tried. I mean, I what do, I we do. did yeah. guaranteed failure, right? We right. didn't give the ability to, the, again, they would have had to withdraw from significant portions. Uh, we didn't train an, an independent, uh, we didn't train a military that's capable of kind of independence. And it was, we, we create, we trained a military that was entirely dependent on us. Absolutely. Dependent on us. For and that was a problem. Just like supports right. for you know, for all the combat enablers, for the maintenance. And we just pulled the plug on that. We didn't give them a time to transition. I don't think the Afghan military was unwilling to fight. They just were unable to fight. No, I don't want to say that. I think that that's a very good point. And I think let's underline that. The volunteers for the Afghan military bled and died in much higher numbers than Americans. And they fought bravely against our mutual enemies. And we should never lose sight of that that they were our allies and the, and they they absorbed the brunt of it but that said these were very corrupt institutions absolutely and but, that kind of corruption is that is a cancer to national unity I, and, and again i'm not saying that we would have left a nation of afghanistan behind but we could have left opposition to the right. taliban behind as much as dysfunctional as they were people there were afghans and plenty of them both within the government and the military and in the national director of security and the police that did not want to live under Taliban rule. And some of them are fighting to this day in organizations like the National Resistance Front and the Afghanistan Freedom Front. They're conducting guerrilla operations against the Taliban. This U.S. State Department has come out and said, oh, no, we, we oppose any violent opposition to the Taliban and we're all for negotiations because that worked so well for us in the past, negotiating with the Taliban. Hold on. 
State Department said that? They absolutely said that, yes. Not the not because that works so well. That, that was my commentary. No, I mean, but the idea that we wouldn't support... Oh, no, it's a direct We wouldn't quote. support it's resistance to the Taliban. We not support violent resistance to the Taliban and, and well, urge... Bill Roggio and Eli Lake support violent resistance to the Taliban. I'll tell you that much. Well, we're not the State Department. Exactly. We're, so, we're just two guys on a Zoom call. <laughs> exactly. If they only put us in charge, boy. So, you know, getting to that... It was it was guaranteed to fail, and I look I the end the endless war argument it really grates on me because we didn't end the an endless war Afghanistan has has been and this continues to be an endless war we in, ended our involvement in that endless war and that could have repercussions if the U S was going to leave Afghanistan we should have been very clear about what we're leaving behind and at least supported an an effort to oppose the Taliban because it was very obvious the Taliban was going to support Al-Qaeda. I predicted this, you know, the United Nations Security Council's sanctions and monitoring team predicted this as well. It was, you know, but we were just dismissed as being, you know, warmongers. What I, look, I, after what I witnessed in Afghanistan for 20 years, I wanted out too. But I also I was, tr I, was tr I was trying to be realistic about what we were leaving behind and that it poses a direct threat to United States national security for both Americans here in the United States and Americans based abroad, American businesses, American soldiers, and our allies. And, you know, just pretending that ending an involvement in Afghanistan ends the war, that's just not how it works. Our enemy gets a vote and they're voting right now. The killing of Zawahiri in Afghanistan is proof positive that that endless war has not ended. Do you think that Al-Qaeda has the capability to strike again in the United States. And I'm not talking about inspiring what is sometimes called a lone wolf, although we both know that lone yeah. wolves have support networks, but talking about a large kind of attack similar to, you know, of the scale of 9-11. Is that possible right now? Does Al-Qaeda have that capability in your view? The answer is, and this is what actually scares me, is I don't know. Okay. And we didn't expect Al-Qaeda to use airplanes to slam into buildings on September 10th, 2001, right? That wasn't something we were prepared for. How did Al-Qaeda execute that, that, that attack? They were given the time and space in Afghanistan to plot, to train, recruit, recruit train, and fundraise for these attacks. I don't know what Al-Qaeda's next attack in the United States may be, or even if they're going to do it, because it may be beneficial for them. Or even if they can, which is to say- Right, right. It, they may I, not- They certainly want to, but I mean- Well, I don't even know if they want to. Is it beneficial to, for them to poke the bear or not? But we have to remember, the attack in the United States, that's a, here in, or against US interests, that's merely a tactic. Their bigger goal of establishing a global caliphate, that's the real threat to us. Just as hmm. the expansionist of communism was the threat to it. Well, okay, but that's where I come by, maybe with a sort of optimism in the sense that, I don't know, I think they're further away from a caliphate. I, I think that the bloom is really off the rose in terms of the broader Muslim world. And I think we've gotten much better at detecting and preventing terror attacks. And I so I think it's harder. I, I agree with you, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's harder for them. It doesn't mean that it, we should just shut down everything. I mean, I think one of the reasons that I'm optimistic is because we've developed this capability and we should sort of, you know, I mean, you can scale it back from where it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, but you should still keep that, that kind of capability. I would not have gotten out of Afghanistan for as, any number of reasons as we discussed. But nonetheless, the jihadist terror is not the level of threat that it was 20 years ago. I think that's, in large part due to the success of, you know, our, our spies and soldiers and, you know, financial analysts and people like yourself who, who follow it and get to know and understand these organizations. And that ultimately the threat has diminished, even though it hasn't gone away. Is that fair? I would say that their footprint has expanded. Okay. And safe havens don't just exist in Afghanistan as it was pre 9-11, that they're in countries like Mali and in Somalia and in Syria. And these are places where Al-Qaeda leaders and recruits are fighting and are training. And that's what worries me. They, if they decide to turn this to conducting attacks against American citizens or Westerners or American allies and friends, 
they have far greater capability to do so. Do a, and, and also what worries me is that this is an organization that doesn't think in terms of election cycles like we do here two and four years. You know, I always, I, I describe it as McWar, right? We, we went to pull them through the drive-through, get our McWar, crumple up yeah. the bag, toss it out the window. And they're, Al-Qaeda is saying, we're going to fight for decades. We're going to fight. Well, they, they think in terms of historical epochs. Yes. They so, think they, 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 they see themselves as part of a chain that goes back to the Prophet Muhammad and the original caliphate. And that's what they're about. Yeah. And I think that's what makes them dangerous. That's when we start taking the eye off the ball. Look, if we were to conduct, if we were to keep an eye on this, like you and I would, I'd be less worried. But what I've witnessed, though, particularly over the last decade, is and it is a great push is the end the endless war narrative. It's not been embraced just on the left. It's been embraced on the right. And it's pushing closer and closer to the center of the political sphere. This this isolation, whatever you want to call it. That's what concerns me. And, and, and it isn't a rational argument to say, like you and I are, are having a discussion here. What is the threat? You know, the distance between you and I on what the threat is, you know, we could come to an agreement that we need to do X, Y, and Z yeah. to keep this threat contained. But the end, the endless war narrative, the isolationist narrative is, is it's not a threat anymore. I don't care about it. Let's disengage. And once that is, and, and I've, you know, look, once that becomes the, the, the common, you know, the political narrative, things get really dangerous. I don't want to take my eye off the ball. That's, that's where I stand on that. Again. Well, and I think it's complicated by the fact that, you know, after January 6th, there, you know, the, the apparatus of the U.S. government that was so successful in disrupting domestic terrorist threats will now, is now being turned against people who some of whom are, are clearly violent and should be watched by the FBI, but many of whom are just sort of, you know, have become somewhat politically radicalized for completely different reasons and shouldn't be treated like terrorists because they're American citizens. And I believe that we probably should have been much more attuned to that issue during, you know, the height of the war on terror when it comes to American citizens, because there were plenty of examples of the FBI, you know, having such an aggressive posture on you know, domestic jihadist terrorism, that there were a lot, there were cases if you take a look at it and you put it under, you know, that said, okay, you know what, I think that they were sort of almost, you know, enticing or, you know, provoking a threat with their informants as opposed to really disrupting a, something that was about to happen. And we see it with a Megan Whitmer kidnapping plot that was disrupted, where almost everybody involved was, you know, was either working for the FBI or an FBI agent and stuff like that. And you know, that's a that's a concern, too. So I think at least on the right, there is some concern that the Leviathan that has been successful in many ways in keeping the country safe from jihadist terror can easily be turned against American citizens. I could not agree with you anymore. And, and the point you make about the enticing of yeah. would be Islamic. Like you're on a chat room and you're like, hey, don't you hate the infidels? Wouldn't you like to kill them? Yeah. There, there's totally dude, <laughs> you know, there's places like, out there that made my skin crawl where I'm yeah, like, you know, absolutely. this guy was clearly taken down the path when, you know, and, and I do worry about that. I do worry about, as you said, the Leviathan turning on, you know, I I've testified, at, I'll tell a really quick, quick story here. This early spring, I testified at the, I believe it was the, I can't remember the committee, but this, the, the Homeland Security Committee at the house. And the topic was the state of international terrorism. And the entire focus on, from one side of the aisle, from the Democrats, was domestic terrorism. And every time I mentioned how Al-Qaeda was regrouping in Afghanistan or, how, you know, the Taliban Al-Qaeda ties, I heard from Democrat congressmen, oh, I didn't realize we came here to discuss. And these aren't, you know, on the, the left congressmen, but these were mainstream, you know, I didn't realize we came here to oh, discuss. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it, it, we, we tend to think of it's not just the fringes. Yeah. And the establishment Democrats the, that became the resistance to Trump have their own conspiracy theories, have their own kind of extremism in, in cases. And I am in no way excusing, you know, the, the riot in the Capitol. I believe that Trump completely incited it. It's a disgrace what happened. He's a danger as a president who wouldn't accept, you know, losing an election. But it's not, you cannot say that that is the same as an organization like Al-Qaeda that exists or at least, you know, has 
you know, very elaborate plans and a protocol for, you know, mass murder and using that as a tool to advance their goal of restoring a caliph. It's just apples and oranges. Doesn't mean it's not serious. Doesn't mean that it's not at, 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 at least on the fringes when you're talking about groups that, that are prone to violence and law enforcement concern. But most of the people who, you know, don't accept the results of the election are, they're wrong. But if you treat them like terrorists, you're going to have a civil war. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, yeah. I had congressmen talking about, you know, calling domestic shooters, which is a crime and it's horrific, domestic terrorists and how we should be, pro you know, there is yeah. things such as criminal activity and, you know, taking, you know, and holding your countrymen as terrorists for having different political views at one side or acting in criminal matter. You know, this, this is what worries me. This is where I come back when you ask me, is it still a threat? Well, they're down, you know, I, what I see is uh, on one side downplaying the threat or saying it's not even important. I literally had to stop after the third time I was in that testimony where I said, I was asked that, why are we talking about Afghanistan? I had to stop and say, and explain what Afghanistan made, meant to 9-11 and sort of chide the congressman that, you know, we're, we're talking about Al-Qaeda metastasized in, inside of Afghanistan and this is international terrorism. And what, we're, what you're asking about are domestic, political, and criminal issues, and I'm here to talk about international terrorism. So, it th those are the things that 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 give me the indication. And also, people who people have done the, the mass shooting problem is a huge problem. But it's no a different problem. It's not a, a different problem. But even the ones that are like, you know, driven by you know extreme racism or extreme anti-Islam sentiment, like in Christchurch, they're not really connected to. A network in the same way that if you really like, if you've read Lawrence Wright, if you read Long War Journal, if you if you manage to really study this stuff as as those of us who like you and I have, it's just apples and oranges. Yeah. There's a it's like there are no I don't know are there you know four chan and eight chan are not the same no. as you know experienced terror facilitators. You know what I mean? It's just not the same thing. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. They are very, very different problem sets, very, very different. One is an organization that has tens of thousands of fighters on battlefields that recruits millions of dollars or, or extracts millions of dollars via fundraising, yeah. taxing and stealing and things like that, and uses it to train and, you know, you train suicide bombers and dom these domestic, and I put the word quotes, terrorism attacks tend to be individuals who are mentally deranged or have very extreme views, but are operating, you know, not at the direction and training of, of, of an overarching organization, but right. as a, as individuals who are conducting, you know, criminal acts, essentially. Well, criminal acts, they're, they're, they're driven by terrible ideology, but, but it's not. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we have gone so long, <laughs> but more importantly, this was a wonderful conversation. Bill Roggio, I want to thank you so much for coming on the re-education. We'll have to have you back. And I want to thank everybody for listening. And please, you know, give us those five stars, write nice reviews. We really appreciate it. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.